Now, I'm going to have to ask your forgiveness for the way I'm going to introduce or start this morning. Uh, it is Mother's Day, and you've had a chance to all kind of greet each other. I've seen uh, some, some of you greeting each other in the mothers. Uh, my mother lives in Sun City West, Arizona, and this is kind of an, a, a unique uh, week for us because her 90th birthday is going to be on Tuesday, and I'm leaving tomorrow morning early and going there to, uh, to celebrate Mother's Day and her birthday, a very special birthday. I, when she turned 80, I took her hot air ballooning, which was exciting. I told her then that if she made it to 90, I would take her bungee jumping. And so uh, we have an appointment uh, on uh, Tuesday afternoon. Uh, well, actually not. I won't do that to her. But she's an energetic woman. She's sharp. She's alive. She's got energy to burn. Our, my kids have affectionately nicknamed her Turbo, and, uh, and she lives up to that name, and, and, and lovingly so. In any case, one of the reasons I wanted to do that now is because she has been listening to all of the sermons, because apparently they're on the uh, internet, and I, and I know for a fact that as soon as I get down there, she's going to be asking me questions about my sermons. She's an old school teacher, and uh, I won't bring the t- transcripts so she won't check my spelling. But, she, but, but it's, it's a real privilege for me to know that I'm able to bless her uh, in, in, in the way that she's blessed me over the years. And so, Mom, happy Mother's Day and happy birthday. Now, <laughs> and from the rest of the congregation as well, thank you. And mom, you're going to know this story here. When I was a kid growing up in Park Ridge, Illinois, I had a friend. His name was Paul Thompson. Mom, you remember him? Uh, He was one of the very few people I had ever met who actually had had polio. Those are giving you an idea of my age here at this stage. Uh, But he had polio. And for those of you who don't know what it is, polio is a dreaded disease. And it was one that would cripple and often kill. And my friend Paul was one who had actually survived and, and, and while he had the disease, and while he was a, a, a boy, and we were all playmates in the same neighborhood, he had lost the use of one of his legs. It was partially paralyzed on one side. And I remember uh, learning how to ride bikes with him, and, and, and he, he had a unique style. He would, he, would, he would use just the one leg that was working, and he would lift the pedal with the foot, and then he would flip it down, and he would push it down, and he'd lift it, and he'd push it down, and he'd lift it, and he'd put it, push it down. And I, I remember thinking, along with my rest of my buddies, that that was pretty cool. I thought that was, that was a pretty neat little trick, and soon it became a game that we would all play to see who could pedal the fastest down to Hinkley Field and go to the swimming pool uh, doing the one-foot push, the one-foot you know, one pump. And uh, he was pretty fast on a bike, and, and, but he limped with a crutch, and, and, and eventually uh, the crutch went away, but he had this loping gait where he would, he would dip to one side and then push ahead. He had this this limp. And over time, he was healed. And years later, we ended up playing on the church, uh, on the same softball team, uh, church softball team. And one day, uh, as he was playing in right field, I, I watched as he, as he limped out from the dugout, uh, 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 just kind of limp on his way out to, 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 to the, from the infield. And, and a little later in the game, a, a ball was hit his way. And, and I was actually stunned to watch because when the ball was flying out there, he, he actually sprinted. He actually ran, and he caught the ball. There was no limp. 
He was, he was running full out, and he caught the ball, and I was stunned. And, and, and when the inning was over, he limped back to the bench, and I asked him, how did you do that? You were running. And he said, sure, what do you expect? I'm the right fielder. And I, I said, yeah, but, but your limp, it wasn't there. And then he said something to me, was, I'll never forget, he says, oh, he said, my leg's fine. It doesn't bother me a bit. I've just gotten used to walking that way, that's all. I've gotten used to my limp. I've gotten used to limping. What a thought. That there are some things that we actually learn to live with. That we get used to. And that we draw the assumption that that's the way it is and that's the way it always will be. And it is a surrender to a painful habit where we assume that that is as good as it's going to get and that's it. We see that in ourselves and, and we see that happening in others as well. And when we turn to our passage this morning, we'll find it there as well in Luke chapter 13. I'm going to ask you to turn there in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13 and as we turn there, I, I, I can't help but think of my friend from the youth as we start at verse 10. There we read, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. 18 years. She was bent over, and she could not straighten up at all. That's one of the reasons I love reading and studying through the Gospel of Luke. Because of the four Gospels, he's the only one actually to record this specific event. Why? Because he was a doctor, and I'm looking at Dr. Tobert right now. He was was your predecessor. He was a doctor. He was the one with the clinical eye. He was able to see uh, what Jesus saw when he entered the synagogue. And, And somewhere in the corner, there was this woman tucked away. But with the doctor's eye, Luke was able to not only see her, but he was able to offer a diagnosis. One commentator, uh, Samuel Gildenheis, has provided a medical name to her condition. It's called spondylitis deformans. Did I get that right? Oh, good. Okay. Spondylitis deformans. It, It was a progressive bone disease where the vertebrae actually fuses itself into a rigid mass. And in her case, she had suffered with this for 18 years. And this disease, like a spirit, had taken up occupancy in her and had made itself at home. And who knows what she had done over those 18 years, what steps she had taken to free herself from the pain and the deformity, and how many doctors she may have visited, how many herbal remedies she may have tried, and who knows what support she might have received from this synagogue fellowship. All I know is, however, that in 18 years, certain facts had hammered themselves into a cruel reality. One commentator writes it this way, For 18 years, this devilish spirit had been bending her spine like an iron bar, hunching her over and pressing her face to the ground, so that all she could see that day was the dirt and the gravel at her feet that had become the horizon of her world. And no one could help her, and perhaps at this point, no one ever cared. In his book on Walton Pond, Henry David Thoreau describes a a common human condition. He he talks about the mass of humanity leading lives of quiet desperation. 
I imagine that would be a good diagnosis for her as well. That after 18 years, all she could do would be living a life of quiet desperation. That's all she could say. And so after 18 years, we find this, this woman, she's arrived at a place where, with a condition that, that not only she, but everyone around her had actually gotten used to and actually had gotten comfortable with. If you could call having a fuse back comfortable, I sure couldn't. And notice I said not only her, but those around her had gotten comfortable with it, including the leaders of the synagogue. Now, I I can imagine as Jesus is coming here, his reputation has already gone ahead of him. And and with a reputation developed around Jesus, it included also an extremely powerful healing ministry. And his visit, I would imagine, could have been met with a request by the leaders saying, oh, by the way, we understand you've got a healing ministry. We would love to see what you could do with our poor sister here. But no. Their attitude is one of resignation as well. As if we've already forgotten about her. She's fine as she is. She's gotten used to it. It's part of her spirit, and so is it with us. And she may have become invisible to their eyes, but not to Jesus. Because as we read there, it says, he saw her, he sees her. And if if you go through that verse, in verse 12, and just start marketing the verbs, you will notice the initiative that Jesus Christ takes. He takes the initiative. When Jesus saw her, he called her, he said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God, which is what they should have been doing on the Sabbath anyway. Now, what may have escaped everyone else's attention did not get past Jesus. I don't know if you remember back when I began this study in Luke, back in the beginning of the winter, uh, that I found the whole of of the gospel, the whole of Luke's gospel, summed up in one single verse. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, there we read the purpose why Jesus came. And it says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Those three things, came, to seek, and to save. You can take those three and those would be the headings of the outline of the entire gospel. But that was his mission. He came to seek and save. The mission of Jesus in three verbs. And if you're going to look at the world through his eyes, don't be surprised if you find that your eye lands on someone in need of rescue. For if you're going to see the world as Jesus sees the world, you're going to be part of that mission to come and to seek and to save. And here Jesus sees this woman, and even more, he saw something of her heart. Notice something here. Very careful about this. There is no record in Luke's gospel of her calling out to Jesus. Not only is there no record of her having any friends who would cut out a hole in the roof and drop her down in front of Jesus. There's no record of her even herself praying to Jesus. But we also read in the Bible something of the ability of Jesus, that he has the sensitivity and and the insight to be able to read the human heart. And I have to believe 
that what he saw was, or, or, or maybe even better, what he, he heard was in fact in, within her a voice, a voice of quiet desperation where it was framed in such a way, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. And so he saw her. And he called her to himself, and he spoke to her, and he touched her, and she was healed. I love the way of a preacher of the last century wrote it of this. He says, with one touch, with one touch, Jesus unclenched the knotted muscles and softened her calcified bones. And in an instant, the woman blossomed like a rosebud and lifted her face to the sun of life and stretched her arms to the sky in praise of God. <laughs> what a Sabbath, eh? Now, more on that in just a second. But look at the response that we find in verse 14. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, a synagogue ruler said to the people, people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. (laughs) You see, what what, what had put a smile on the face of God had in fact put a frown on, on, on the face of at least one man, the leader of the synagogue. And notice here, too, the ruler doesn't address this to Jesus. He he speaks to the congregation, and he says, in essence, this. This is what he's saying. Don't expect this to happen every Sabbath when you come here, please. Don't get used to this. Stuff like this doesn't happen all the time. In fact, we all know God doesn't work this way, even though he just did, but he doesn't always work this way. So if you want to get healed, take two aspirins and come back tomorrow and any other day this week, but not on the Sabbath, please. (laughs) And that is such a human response. God shows up and we don't know what to do, but to try to put him back in a box as if we can tell him what he can or cannot do. But it's a legalism that ends up boomeranging. And and, and, and boomerangs away from God and it ends up putting people into shackles instead of putting him in a box. And the response could have been so much different. This ruler could have joined hands with this woman as she's praising God and had joined in the celebration, but instead he found himself scrambling to make sure that no one else would break out of their cage. We would never do that, would we? (laughs) Over the years, I... I collect all sorts of stuff from my files. So if I go to a doctor's office and there's a Reader's Digest, I will walk away with at least 15 good illustrations. I mean, I read everything I can. And, and, I, and in my files, I found a list of some of the Sabbath laws, which, many of which are still on the books. For example, let me read a few. In Blackwater, Kentucky, tickling a woman under her chin with a feather duster when she's in church services carries a penalty of $10 and one day in jail. In in Adana, Oregon, it is a civic misdemeanor to eat unshelled roasted peanuts while attending church. In Honey Creek, Iowa, no one is permitted to carry a slingshot to church except a policeman. (laughs) In in Lee Creek, Arkansas, no citizen is allowed to attend church in any red-colored garment. 
In Studley, Virginia, swinging a yo-yo in church or anywhere in public, actually, on the Sabbath is, permi- is prohibited. And in Slaughter, Louisiana, this is my favorite, turtle races are not permitted within 100 yards of a local church at any time, not just on Sunday, but at any time within 100 yards of a church. <laughs> now, now, you know, I, I like that one because, I mean, after all, isn't turtle race an oxymoron? You know, when, when you think of it, you know, a turtle and a race. And no wonder it's at any time, not just on, on, on the Sabbath, any time, because it is conceivable you could actually start the turtle race within 100 yards of a church on Tuesday, and it would still be going on the Sunday. So, you know, for shame, for shame, you can't do that, at least not in Slaughter, Louisiana. We laugh at it. Those are the extreme examples. But let's face it, sometimes we forget why we're here. And why we are here in our worship of God. It is human nature to get fixated on routines. Rather than focus on the reality. And in fact, it does take a divine effort to see the world as God sees it and to view our gathering together through the eyes of the one who loved us, who gave himself for us, who came to seek us and to save us. And it's with that spirit of divine correction that Jesus then speaks in verse 15. You hypocrites, do not each of you on his Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the staff and lead him away to water? Shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? You see, what is at issue here is a matter of salvation, of healing, of restoration, and of freedom. That is what our spirits yearn for in our worship. And I love the contrast that Jesus brings about here. If you are able to conjure up enough compassion for your cow, you should be able to appreciate compassion for a woman who has been struggling with this issue of life for 18 years, especially when the grace of God has set her free. (laughs) Now, I don't know the history of this synagogue, but I can imagine that each Sabbath for 18 years when they met, when it came for that time in the service to pray and to thank God, this woman had been there for 18 years. And maybe in the first few weeks, months, or years, her name had been at the top of their list in prayer. Let's pray for our sister. Let's pray for our sister. But then 18 years go by, and somehow quiet desperation over time leads to resignation and becomes part of the whole routine. And it takes the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, to arrive to wake us up even today, even now. Now, there may be some here who over the years have gotten close enough to God but are now comfortable just to be a cripple in his presence. And maybe that you came and you had a prayer request on your heart and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and now you've kind of put it into routine and resignation and, and you're just happy to be close to Jesus. Please know Jesus has more in mind. As I read this passage, it's clear that that the image of salvation as released from Satan's clutches is the major picture in this text. 
The, the woman may have been shackled by a physical condition, but Satan's presence just hovered over the whole scene and caused more than just the fusing of her vertebrae. The damage that Satan had inflicted had gone beyond the body and became something which crippled the emotions and her soul. And I see that in so many who have adopted a dependence on other things, substances or behaviors that are compulsive and destructive, and like this woman, bend them low and keep them enslaved, resigned to cope with whatever. Alcohol, drugs, you name it. Look, the Lord Jesus has you at heart, seeking to save not just the half of you, but the whole. And when the hand of Jesus touches a person, the there is nothing, it is nothing short of, of something glorious because he loosens Satan's grip and he straightens what sin has bent and he frees from the bonds of your own making and you blossom into praise. At the same time, there may be some who have gotten so used to, to people's conditions that they've given up praying and, and bringing them before Jesus. In fact, you've actually establish rules for religious behaviors that have nothing to do with Jesus to the point where if, in fact, Jesus did show up, we we, we couldn't remember who needs him or why. But the fact is, Jesus is still on the hunt and is here even now seeking to heal and to save you and you and you and you and you and you and me as well. We are here by grace, for grace, and in grace, and our hearts are open to Jesus. And I love the response of those who then saw Jesus for who he is. Look at verse 17. The people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. A couple of years ago, uh, Ed Dobson, the pastor, shared his testimony with with this in mind, an illustration of such a response. In the, in the fall of 2000, doctors diagnosed him with ALS, uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, it's an incurable and a fatal disease, and the doctors gave him two to five years to live and predicted that he would spend most of that time in a very disabled and painful condition. So shortly after he was diagnosed, uh, Ed wanted someone to anoint him with oil and pray for healing. And he wanted someone to pray who really, in fact, did believe in healing. So he had to invite a friend, a Pentecostal pastor who had a regular healing service, to come and to pray over him before his people and his congregation. And here is how he described what happened. Listen carefully. It was one of the most moving evenings of my entire life, he says. He began by, t- he began by telling stories about people he had prayed for who were miraculously healed. He also... He also told stories about people who he had prayed for who were not healed and had passed away, but not before receiving that ultimate and final healing of the presence of Jesus Christ. And before he prayed for me, he gave me some advice. Don't become obsessed with getting healed, Ed, he said. If you get obsessed with getting healed, you will lose your focus. Get lost instead in the wonder of God, and who knows what he will do for you. (laughs) Ed Dobson says, that is the best advice I have ever received. And since that night, I should have learned these lessons years and years ago, but since that night, I have been trying to get and to stay lost 
in the wonder of God. Can I promise you that on this Sunday you will come and be healed from your diseases? I cannot promise you that, but I can promise you this. Jesus knows you. He loves you. He cares for you. And as you come here, I'd like to think that in our worship, we are all lost in the wonder of God. We come out of lives where, in fact, we have been marching along, trudging along would probably be a better word, trapped into our routines It's nice to step into a place to be reminded once again there is a Lord who loves you, who cares for you, who came, who sought you out, who saves you. And with that, we lift our eyes to Jesus and with wonder we praise his name. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reminder. And I confess to you that, Lord, we too often get caught up in our routine. In fact, we ritualize it. And in our prayers, we even surrender, Lord, to quiet desperation. So, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. And then, Lord, that you would stir us. And that by your Holy Spirit, you would awaken us. That, Lord, eagerly we might be able to see you. And that, Lord, eagerly we might be able to to join with you and that, Lord, eagerly we might be able to feel your touch as you straighten our lives and you, and you make us whole and as you lift us up. Lord Jesus, there may be some within this congregation, even right now, who are in need of a healing touch. You know who they are. You see them and <laughs> your vision is so much better than ours. And I will forever pray, Lord, that you would bring about healing. But even, Lord, as I pray that, I will forever pray, Lord, that you will bring about the wonder of God in our hearts and unfold us to yourselves, that, Lord, before you we might blossom in praise. So we give ourselves to you now, Lord, and all that you would seek to do in our lives And that, by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit, this we pray in the power and the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.